Good morning. Uh, Tom and Matt asked me to preach this morning. My name is Sam Kasten-Smith, and I'm a Bible teacher at Westminster Academy, a student at Knox Theological Seminary, and I had the, the great privilege of going over with Tom and several of you over to Israel and to Egypt. And he asked me to do Rio Men two or three weeks ago, and apparently that was kind of a job interview to see if they wanted to bring me on as an intern. And uh, apparently I passed. I don't know if they'll ask me back after today. But uh, anyway, he asked me after I did Rio Men, Matt asked me if I'd be willing to preach. And I am so excited to be here and to sit under Tom, who I consider a very godly man, a man of integrity, and to work under Matt and to learn from them. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. My wife, Laura, and our two kids will be, be coming on here at Rio as interns, and we're, I'm just really excited to be here. And today I'm going to be preaching from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and this will be, I guess, trial by fire. I know the first time I ever preached a sermon, I was preaching at my, my father-in-law's church, uh, Laura's dad is a Presbyterian pastor up in Port St. Lucie, and I went up there, and I preached, and I got done, and I thought, oh, that went pretty well. But as insecure as I am, I went fishing for compliments, you know, like we all do sometimes. And I said, Laura, what do you think of the sermon? And I'm waiting for her to be like, oh, it was great, you know. And she goes, um, uh, and I'm thinking, oh, no. But she used to be a missionary back in Ukraine, and she, while she was there, she spent three and a half years under another pastor, and she's not a critical spirit, but she says this guy, his preaching was just, you know, not so good. So trying to salvage some kind of a compliment, I said, well, how would I compare with him? And Laura says, oh, he was much worse than you are. So I don't come with a lot of accolades and whatnot, but anyway, in preparing this sermon, I was extraordinarily blessed. Because let me tell you, we serve and worship such an awesome God. And the more and more we dig into his word, your theme right now is know the word and live the word. And the more you dig deeper into his word, the more you are so blown away by the passionate heart of God who has decorated all of his scriptures with this theme of his passionate, borderline romantic love for your redemption. And today's sermon, I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 9. And Hebrews is one of those books that's often misunderstood. And the reason why it's misunderstood is because it presupposes that we understand properly the Old Testament because the main idea of Hebrews is that this Lord that we worship, Jesus Christ, is the fulfillment of all these shadows and types. He is so much better than everything that had been laid down in the Old Testament. He is better than the angels. He is a better prophet than Moses. He is a better high priest than Aaron. He is a better tabernacle, a better temple, a better sacrifice, a better blood. He's the completed, perfect, beautiful culmination of everything that the Old Testament is pointing us to. But we tend to shy away from these kinds of themes because, quite frankly, guilty of this too, when we read our Bibles, we love Genesis. 
We, you know, we go through the creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel and the patriarchs and the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and we love it. And then we get to, to Moses and we, we read through Moses and he's confronted at the burning bush, goes back into Egypt, delivers the people, leads them through the Red Sea. God pours out these plagues and that's exciting. And then God calls him back to Mount Sinai and he goes up on the mount and then we shut down. We don't find this interesting because God starts throwing down all these laws, the Ten Commandments, the property laws, all the sundry laws. And then he starts giving all these instructions on the measurements of the tabernacle and what it's supposed to be made out of. And, you know, this kind of cubits and that kind, this many cubits. And the priest is supposed to wear this ephod and a turban and a breastplate and these stones are in them. And we look at that and we go, know the word, live the word? What? <laughs> How am I supposed to know that word and live that word? I'm going to go kill a goat? No. What God is pointing us to is this beautiful pattern of the gospel. But we look at it and we think, why know this word? We don't sacrifice anymore. If I thought about coming in here in, a, in the high priest garb with the breastplate and everything like that, but you'd, you'd mock me, I, rightly so, because I'd look like an idiot. But what all that is intending to do is to point you to Christ. And there is a way to know that word and to live that word because it's pointing to this beautiful picture of Christ, all of it. And the sermon title is The Most Holy Place because the thing I want to focus on today in particular is this most holy place, the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, a little tiny room about 10 cubits by 10 cubits. It's the size of most master bedrooms, 15 feet by 15 feet. And that room is screaming God's passionate heart for your redemption. You know, it's like Matt talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark. We tend to see all that stuff as just kind of weird and archaic and we don't understand it. And, you know, that movie's got, you know, gives the wrong impression. You know, how many of you have seen that movie again? Let me see. You've got the worst special effects in the history of filmmaking, I think, at the part where the Ark of the Covenant comes because you have people's faces just melting off and one guy's head explodes when you come across the Ark of the Covenant. And that's the way we kind of see all this old stuff. We don't quite understand it, so we just go, oh, that's back when God was angry. I don't know. But we miss the beauty of it. That stuff was intended to preach to us That's not just the Old Testament that we can throw away. And when we do so, we miss so much of God's beauty that he has for us there. You know, recently, I went on a trip over to to Israel and to Egypt, and we got to see some really, really remarkable stuff. And I'll tell you right now, this was about two months ago, two, three months ago. I'm very glad I'm not in Egypt anymore. I'm I'm very glad to be home. But when we were there, we saw some pretty remarkable stuff. Egypt has all this really, really cool stuff like the pyramids and the mummies and sarcophaguses and the Book of the Dead and all this stuff. And it's just this echo. It's this reminder that ever since the beginning of man, we all have this hunger that there's got to be something better than this. There's got to be purpose to this. There's got to be something beyond this life. And if there's any culture on earth... (laughs) that is absolutely obsessed 
with death and resurrection, it's Egypt. Everything you think about ancient Egypt is all focused on death. What are the pyramids? They're giant tombs that are guarded to preserve the Pharaoh's body because if the flesh deteriorated, they're dead forever. What are mummification? That process is to preserve the flesh because if they rot, they're dead forever. The book of the dead you see down on the the lower left-hand corner This is how a man, every religion in the world except for Christianity comes with this basic premise. You see on the, on that frame, you see the God Anubis is leading this man and there's scales. And on one side, you have the man's heart and it's being weighed against a feather. And it's saying, is this man good enough for the afterlife or is his heart weighed down by sin? Every religion in the world, with the exception of Christianity, teaches you've got to be good enough. You've got to strive. You've got to do it. You've got to come up with some clever way to make your body be preserved. But it's all on you. Next slide. This is the famous hall of judgment. And if you made it past those scales at the beginning, then you went on to to see Osiris. And next slide. And they had this elaborate process, and there's a reason why I'm, I'm building this up. They have these canopic jars, and what they would do when a pharaoh died, they would take the organs from the inside, and they would put them in these jars. There was a jar for the lungs, the liver, the stomach, and the intestines. They would put them inside, and then they would seal the lids on these jars. And ironically, they threw away the brain. They, they hooked it out and threw it away, and I was, I told Matt I was going to make a joke about Baptists right now, but I I decided against it. But anyway, next slide. They would take these canopic jars, and then they would put them in a canopic shrine. And the canopic shrine, as we're walking around the museum in Cairo, really fascinating. It's this wooden box that's overlaid with gold. It has a lid on it, and on top of it is this image forged of the god Anubis who is the God of resurrection and afterlife. And as we're coming up to this image, Dr. Gage and Pastor Tom are leading us up there, and Dr. Gage said something that made me think. He says, this, 400 years the Israelites spent in Egypt, and this would have been how they had the technology, the know-how, to later build the Ark of the Covenant, which is essentially the same kind of design. It's a wooden box overlaid with gold with a lid on top, And then they would have images of the angels on the lid rather than Anubis. And it got me thinking, if this is how the Egyptians believed you were to achieve eternal life, all man's effort, all preservation of the flesh, then maybe when God gives us the Ark of the Covenant, that is to be a picture of resurrection. So if you would open up your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter 9. Next slide, please. And you can see the results of what happens in Egypt. This is what happen when, happens when men try to save themselves, when men believe they can be resurrected by their own power and will. When we were in Egypt, we got to see these mummies up close, very eerie to look into the leathered and rotten faces of these people, knowing that somewhere their soul has departed from those bodies and all of their hopes for resurrection and their own strength have failed them. But God gives 
a new beginning to Moses. When he called, first off, God calls Moses, brings him at, at the burning bush. He says, I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver your people. And when you deliver them and you come back through the Red Sea, I want you to come back to me at this mountain, at Mount Sinai. So Moses gets the people, delivers them, brings them through the Red Sea, and he comes to Mount Sinai where he gets the law and all the designs for the tabernacle and everything else. And the book of Hebrews expects us to know a bit about this. Hebrews chapter 9. Next slide, please. Let me, let me preface this a little bit more. When God tells us how to build his tabernacle, he gives very specific instructions. And as he fills it with all furniture and all the things that are going to get in it, it's very specific. And I love this about God. When God praises the patriarchs in Hebrews chapter 11, he says that it was by faith that they chose to live in tents. Why? Because they had their eyes focused on the heavenly city. This wasn't their home. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're wealthy. They could have had nice homes, but they chose to live in tents because they recognized this isn't our permanent home. And when God, when the God of the universe comes and gives instructions for how he wants to live, he doesn't say, go build me a palace. He doesn't want a mansion. He says, I'll take a tent too. He's humble. Just like Jesus will come in all humility, the God of the Old Testament comes and he's humble. And he doesn't even dwell in the whole tent. He dwells in the holiest part of it, the small part of it, this 10 cubit by 10 cubit square. And you can tell a lot about a person by the way they decorate their home. For example, if you were to come into my college dorm room, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. If that was my college dorm room, everybody in here would be going, oh my, what are we in for today? This guy's a mess. But if you walked in there, you'd you'd run. You would want to get out of there as fast as possible because how that person keeps their house tells you a lot about that person. He needs to be in an episode of Hoarders. Next slide. If you walked into this particular person's house, you'd come in and go, oh. And you'd back off. You'd want to know, should I take my feet off? Do I need to wear gloves? I don't want to smudge anything because this person looks highly neurotic. And I don't want to be in there. But when God gives instructions for how you build his home and where he's going to dwell, he gives us this, the tabernacle. And he only dwells in that small section to the far left in the the holy of holies, the most holy place. But once a year, the high priest would come into that room once a year and he would pour down or sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant for the atonement of sins. And he would sacrifice on the altar. He would burn the offering. He would take the blood. He would come into the the tabernacle tent. And once per year, only one person could go beyond that veil. And he would see this, the Ark of the Covenant, a golden box, a wooden box overlaid with gold with a lid. And these angels perched on top of it, overlooking the mercy seat. And in between those two angels, the priest would pour down the blood to atone for the people of Israel. And God gives us all these instructions. And it's like he's singing the gospel as he does it. Let me read Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 15 to you. 
Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared. The first section... Next. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the, the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. And beyond the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense, which is a, um, a censer, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, and which was a golden urn. Now remember these three components, a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Skip to verse 11 with me. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, point this. It's telling you that when Christ is able to enter into the most holy place and a tabernacle not made with human hands, this is what has secured your eternal redemption. And we're left to ponder the thought, what? What What is Hebrews talking about here? Jesus never entered into the holy of holies. That would have been forbidden. But Hebrews is telling you that he did. What does this mean? For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And that's a dense passage, but in it is incredible beauty. Next slide, please. In this passage, it's describing the tabernacle. It's describing that Christ has to enter in through the most holy place for your redemption. Keep that in mind. But inside of this ark that he puts in the most holy place, God decorates it with things he deems worthy of being in the most holy place. And you have the Ten Commandments, the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. Next slide. Let's start with Aaron's rod. Who's Aaron? Aaron is Moses' brother. When Moses is called to go back into Egypt and confront Pharaoh, he says, I can't do that. And God says, okay, you can have Aaron. Aaron will be your mouthpiece. And they deliver the people of Israel, and they come back to Mount Sinai. And Moses goes on top of Mount Sinai, and God begins to give him the law and the instructions and all these things that are necessary for worship. And Aaron stays down behind. And the amazing thing is, God begins to honor Aaron. He wants Aaron to be a man of honor, to be to receive glory even from the people. And he says, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. He goes on and he says, now this I find really fascinating. He says, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. Holy to the Lord. Now Aaron gets to wear this. Holy to the Lord with a gold plate. And it says, and you shall fasten it on a turban by a cord of blue. And it will be on the front of the turban on Aaron's forehead. And Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate. 
And how would Aaron have looked? Here's a drawing of what Aaron would have looked like. Dressed in splendor, he's got the ephod, the turban, the golden plate on his forehead that says, holy to the Lord. He's got a breastplate that's filled with precious gems, fine linens. He is dressed to receive all the honor. And as, next slide, and the role of a priest, what is he called to do? He's called to intercede on behalf of the people, to bear the guilt of the people, to direct the people in worship. He's a mediator between man and God, and he points others to God. So as God is up on Mount Sinai, and he is honoring Aaron, and he is clothing him in majesty, what is Aaron doing down below? He's the worst candidate to be a high priest. What is a priest called to do? He's called to direct people to the true God. And Aaron builds for them a golden calf and says, this is Yahweh who led you out of Israel. He's to lead the people in holy worship. And what does he do? He's leading them in revelry. They're drunk and dancing and doing things that are really inappropriate. And he's called to bear the guilt of the people. But when Moses comes down and says, what are you doing? Aaron says, you know the people. They are set on evil. For they say to me, make us gods who shall go before us. And this Moses, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. He is... The anti-priest. He's the worst of all candidates. I mean, not he's a horrible liar, for one. This is just insanely stupid. But behind the stupidity is a really wicked motive. Now, listen to me for just a minute. They have just... This may not have been so far-fetched if you were an Israelite. Because they have just defeated the entire Egyptian army with a god who supernaturally parts the sea. They're out in a desert with no plant life, no animals, nothing to eat, and God has spared them by supernaturally raining down manna from heaven. They've seen this with their eyes. So when Moses comes to Aaron and says, what are you doing? And he says, I threw it in the fire. Out came this calf. I think what he's doing is he's saying it was miraculous. And if it's miraculous, who is Aaron blaming? God did this. He's a horrible priest. Horrible. And later, there's a rebellion, and Korah and some other men from the tribe of Levi come along and they say, this guy Aaron and this Aaronic priesthood, this is a mess. I don't want this. We're better than he is. Let's overthrow him. And God says, I'll settle this. And he says, speak to the people of Israel and get from them their staves, one for each of the father's house, and from all their chiefs according to their father's house. Twelve staves. And write each man's name on his staff and write Aaron's name on his staff, on the staff of Levi, for there shall be one staff for the head of each father's household and the staff of the man whom I choose will sprout. And you think, this is God's chance to bail on Aaron. This, this guy's unworthy. He's a mess. He's leading people in false worship. He's a total disaster choice for the priesthood. So here, God's going to bail. This is his chance to pick somebody more worthy, Right? What happens the next morning? Moses deposited the staffs before the Lord in the tent of testimony. And on the next day, Moses went into the tent of the testimony. And behold, 
the staff of Aaron for the house of Levi had sprouted, and not only sprouted, but put forth buds and produced blossoms, and it bore ripe almonds all in a night. What's behind this? Here is a God who has taken a dead branch and brought it to life. Here's a God who takes the most unworthy for the priesthood and has come to his defense and made him worthy. This is a God who delights in resurrection. This is a God who delights in the redemption of the unworthy. And this rod that budded, God looks at that and says, now that is a reminder of what is most holy to me. Put it in the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's passion for you. That's God's passion for resurrection and redemption. You feel like you are unworthy of God? You are. But look at Aaron's rod and let that preach to you. Because God can make you worthy. He can bring life from death. He can restore you like he restored Aaron. Because this is what he delights in. This is the kind of stuff that God wants his house and home decorated with. Next. And Aaron is made worthy not because of something he does. Aaron is made worthy because he has a greater high priest. Jesus. You know, it's a real tragedy when you look at the way that Aaron is honored. When God has a chance to look over his people, God decks Aaron out. And I mean, he's looking really regal and holy. And then when we get a chance and we confront our high priest, this is how we dress him. But even this is awesome and beautiful poetry that God is giving us. We take him and instead of giving him the turban with the gold plate holy to the Lord, We give him a crown of thorns. And instead of the breastplate with precious jewels and the expensive ephod and the fine linens, we give him a scarlet robe. And that's not accidental details that God just throws into Scripture. He's preaching beauty and an obsession with the gospel throughout. So let me ask you this. Scarlet. Why a scarlet robe? Scarlet is the color of everything nasty in Scripture. Scarlet is the color that identifies the prostitute of Jericho. Scarlet is what identifies the prostitute in Babylon. Scarlet, like the scarlet letter, it always identifies adultery and dirtiness and this, that, and the other. And Scripture itself says this, that though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be washed as white as snow. So what are we invited to see when our great high priest is going to the cross and he is cloaked And scarlet, Christ is being cloaked in the color of our sin. And why thorns? Instead of this turban, he gets thorns. Why? It's because in Genesis 3, when God gives us the only physical manifestation of our curse, he says this, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, and it will produce thorns and thistles for you. So the curse of man becomes the crown of our high priest. And that is preaching to you. And it's not just Aaron's rod that supernaturally buds, because Isaiah tells us this, there shall come forth 
A shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jesse is in the genealogy of Jesus. And why does it tell us the stump of Jesse? What do you think of when you see a stump? It's been cut. It's dead. It's done. There's no more life there. But it's telling you there will come from that stump a branch. And that branch will come to life and create fruit. And Jesus is that branch And you are that fruit. And when God decorates his holy place, he says, now that is holy. He loves redemption. He loves gospel. He loves grace. He loves you. Next. Next, you come to the jar of manna. Same time period. As they're coming out across the Red Sea, they're entering into the Sinai Peninsula. It's all desert. There's no... Great streams where they're going to find water. It's mostly supernatural. It's all supernatural is how they get fed and water. There's no fruit trees. There's no animals that they can go slaughter. They're out in the middle of this desert with nothing to eat, and they have the sentence of death hanging over their head. And they cry out, man, I wish I were back in Egypt. At least there we had pots of meat. You ever been there? You ever at the end of your rope and you wonder, man, is God going to provide? I am, it doesn't look like things are going to work out. It feels like you got this black cloud hanging over your head. And what does God do? God comes to their defense in their most desperate situation. And he begins to rain down manna. And this God, if he didn't show up, these people would have starved to death without question. And God comes and meets them in their need. And God tells them, pick up an omer full of that, a jar full, and I want you to put that in the Ark of the Covenant. Because when I think of what's worthy of my most holy place, that is. I want these people to have a reminder that I am the God who meets their needs. I am the God who provides their daily bread. They need not worry. That's holy to me. And what happens when that bread, which normally rotted every day, you couldn't grab two days worth unless it was preparation for the Sabbath, but that bread that rots every day, what does, what happens to it? When it goes inside of the Ark of the Covenant, it becomes everlasting. When you dwell in the glory of God, your provision is everlasting. In other words, that bread has everlasting life. It's always providing, and that is holy to God. What does Jesus say when he comes to this earth? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. So just like Christ becomes a greater manifestation of that rod, he becomes a greater manifestation of that manna. He is the bread of life, and if you eat of him, you'll live forever. He is your provider and sustainer, and if you trust in him, he will meet all of your needs. That is what God is preaching in this holy place. Next, we have the tablets of the law. And we think to ourselves, how in the world can something that condemns me be considered worthy of this theme of redemption and resurrection. I mean, after all, Galatians says that those who are 
trying to reach heaven by the law, the law will become a curse to them because you can't do it. But God, even in giving the law, which if you follow it and worship, it will bless your life, but God, even when he gives the law, puts a picture of his gospel in it that is just beautiful. He doesn't just give the law and say, keep it. And if you don't, well, I'll deal with that. He gives the law, and what happens? Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. Next slide, please. Moses went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. And then he goes and he intercedes on behalf of the people. And he says, God, blot me out of the book before you blot my people out. And God says, no, but his wrath turns away and he spares Israel. And then he gives Moses this instruction, go back on the mountain and I'm going to make those tablets new. But I want you to hear this with gospel ears. Next slide. The word comes from heaven and it takes form. And then that same word comes down and it confronts the sin of the people and it's broken. And then God's wrath is turned away and the word is restored. That word will become flesh and it will do that same pattern again. The word will come from heaven, taking on the form of a man And he will confront the sin of the people. And he will be broken. And he will turn away God's wrath from us. And God will raise him up on the third day, brand new and restored to even greater glory where he is given all honor. And this is how God decorates his most holy place. This isn't archaic. It's not scary. This is God preaching resurrection and redemption to you. And he is so absolutely obsessed with your redemption and his love for you. And he sings over you, but he decorates his home with the very images that mean your redemption. He wants you to see that he's a God that brings life from dead objects, who can redeem the most unworthy, who can provide for you when you feel like all hope is lost, and who can restore the word which is broken. And he chooses to put that word deep into the heart of his tabernacle. And you are the temple of God. And God is calling you to have these same emblems buried in your heart. The word of God and you as tabernacles. The faith that God brings life from death in your heart. And the bread of life in your heart. Next slide. And he's not done there. When you come to the Holy of Holies, which is the most holy place, you're confronted by this veil. And this veil meant the separation. Only one person could go beyond that veil once per year. And God chooses, he says this to Moses, and then again to to Solomon, I want you to stitch images of cherubim in that veil. And you think, okay, what's the big deal with cherubim? Well... What do we know about cherubim? They're really fierce creatures. They're, they're not the, the chubby little babies you see on Valentine's Day cards. But the first time we hear about cherubim in the scriptures comes in a very famous passage. It comes in Genesis 3. And this is right after the fall. Listen to what God says. 
God said the man must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever because he doesn't want him to live forever in a fallen state. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And these cherubim that are etched onto the temple veil and placed atop of the Ark of the Covenant are saying to you and to me, no further. You're disgusting. You are fallen. You are sinful. You are not worthy of the presence of God. So every time you entered into the holy place and you came upon the holy of holies, you saw those angels that reminded you of the fall. And what happens? Next slide. When Christ dies, you all know this very well, that veil right down the middle. And we hear that, yeah, this reunites man with God. We can now go into the holy place, the place of God's presence. But even more than that, what has happened to those two angels? What has happened to those angels that are guarding the way, that guarded the way into the Garden of Eden, that guarded us from reaching the tree of life? Those angels are dispatched. And those angels that guarded the way Your path back to Eden, your path to the tree of life are sent away and now angels are sent to minister to you, not to separate you from God. These aren't accidents when God decorates his tabernacle. We look at this as God is singing over you. He is looking forward to this day because your redemption and your life is his core passion Next slide. Then you would have gotten into the Holy of Holies, and there you would have seen the box that held the commandments, the rod, and the manna. And this is how God tells them to build it. You shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them. On two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. And this is what it would have looked like. Our God is often called enthroned between the cherubim. He lives there. That's where God makes his home. That's where his delight is. This is the place, the image, the emblem that God delights in, that he loves, that he makes his home. And he's called enthroned between the cherubim throughout the scriptures. And then we see the Ark of the Covenant, right? Well, let me tell you about the most precious story in all the scriptures to God. You want to talk about our Father And our Savior, his heart singing. Let me take you to the morning of the resurrection. Mary of Magdalene, a former demoniac, probably a prostitute, lowly, filthy, had found redemption in Christ. And she loved him. Passionately loved him. On the morning of the third day, she comes to the tomb and she's sees that the stone is rolled away. His body's not there. And she flips. She's heartbroken. She just wants to find her Lord's body so that she can honor him. And she's desperate. And she runs to find his closest friends. And she goes and she gets Peter and John. And they're like, what? And they sprint back to the tomb. And they come in there. And they see that indeed it's empty. And the folded the linens are folded on the ground, still bloody from where they'd wrapped around Jesus' linens. And they're like, he's not here. He's not here. And they leave. And then Scripture tells us this. And Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been. One at the head 
the other at the foot, and the bloodied linens in between. Sound familiar? When God gives instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, he paints a picture of the empty tomb. God puts one piece of furniture in the most holy place in the world, and it is a picture of the resurrection because there's nothing more holy than that to God. This is where Christ has entered into the most holy place, not made by human hands. The empty tomb is the most holy place. And what I love about this, he doesn't reveal it to Peter. He doesn't reveal it to John. He doesn't reveal it to a high priest dressed in majesty. He reveals it to this lowly woman. God lets her be the first to see the true holy of holies. You feel unworthy of God. I want you to remember that. God delights in showing his love and his beauty to the least hopeful. That's his passion. We have that hope. We have that Savior who sings over us, has written all of redemptive history, just singing your redemption. Why? Because he delights in you, and he will delight in you forever because that image of the empty tomb is what has secured your place with him forever. And it's not just so you can sit and worship him, but so he can love you forever. You think that you'll ever outlove God in heaven. This has paved the way for your redemption where you get to stand before God and he showers you with his love and his glory and his holiness. And he does this forever. And just when you think you've come to the end of one of his attributes, he blows you away because his pool inside of himself that he seeks to share with you is infinite. It goes on forever. You will always forever be wowed. But that is the image that paves the way for you. It's like, you know, we look at the cross. That's the emblem of the crucifixion. I told my wife this. It sounds a little bit kooky, but I feel like we should almost all hang like Ark of the Covenants around our necklaces because that's the image of the resurrection. And God is doing all this to show the Israelites as they come out of Egypt. (laughs) No, no, no. The Egyptians have it wrong. So let me take you back to what we talked about. On the left you see man's efforts. The wooden box overlaid with gold with a lid with the God of afterlife and resurrection on top of it, and they would stuff their own flesh inside of it. And we've seen how it turned out for all of them, right? They're decaying, they're rotting, they're dead. They have no hope of resurrection. And God pulls these Israelites out of Egypt and he's saying, no, 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 no. Let me show you how you have life. And he gives them the Ark of the Covenant and the picture of the empty tomb. And he doesn't fill it with flesh or anything that's by man's own design or effort. He fills it with the things that you need for eternal life, not organs, but the word of God. That leads you to life. The bread of life, that gives you life. Aaron's rod where he redeems the most unworthy and brings life from death, that's faith in that kind of a God is what leads you to life. And all of this, 
He is singing over you with love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord, I thank you so much for your amazing love and your beauty that even from the foundations of this world, before the foundations of this world, you tell us that you have chosen us in Christ. Lord, you have loved us with an everlasting love and you show throughout the scriptures that your gospel is the central passion for us in this world. And you've written redemptive history showing us just how passionate you are. So, Father, help us to know your word better, to live your word, to look at you and to trust you for all of our needs, to look at you and know that you can raise dead dreams and dead lives. And, Lord, help us to live your word, for it is holy, and you are holy, and you are awesome, and we love you so very much. Lord, help us to worship you and and fallen lives in a way that will make you smile over us, Lord, because we know that you delight in us when we worship you as the only God of truth and hope. In Jesus' name, amen.